Welcome to A State of Mind. This is Julian Rice. I am recording this on February 25th, and a lot has been happening in my life recently. A lot to be grateful for. I am recording this from my home instead of from my office, like I usually do. Those on YouTube may notice. But um, I just got back from a trip, seeing some family in the Florida Keys, and I got to attend an arts and music festival called The Loveburn, just outside Miami, where I gave a talk. And my talk was on uh, psychedelic assisted therapy and healing trauma and meditation and the teachings of Buddhism. And I got a lot of good feedback on it. I do have a recording of it, but I haven't decided yet if I will publish that or if I will refine the talk and record it with better quality and share it that way. But bringing together and developing this intersection of these you know, ancient Buddhist teachings, these wisdom traditions, meditation, and our own Western psychological systems, and the ways that psychedelic medicine can be used to facilitate deep, profound healing and even awakening, this is all a real passion of mine, and I'm really excited to be working in this field. And all of this relates to the subject of today's conversation. Today I'm speaking with Keith Martin-Smith. He is a longtime meditator, a martial artist, and the award-winning author of five books, including uh, A Heart Blown Open, which is an incredible book about the amazing life of a Zen master named Junpo Roshi, so I can highly recommend that book. And um, so check it out if you haven't. I've heard rumors that it will be made into a feature-length film, so I really hope that that is true. And Keith is the author most recently of the book called When the Buddha Needs Therapy. <laughs> and in our conversation, we talked some about that title. It's a, it's a provocative title. Um, it's a great book. I can also highly recommend that one. And for those who've been listening to this podcast for a while, you may notice this is Keith's second time on the podcast. So the first time was way back, episode number 27, which was published in October of 2019. So if you scroll back through the episodes, you can find that one and listen to our first conversation together. And this is really exactly the type of conversation that I envisioned having when I first created this podcast. I noticed I felt more excited and inspired after talking with Keith than before, and I really value that. That's such a gift of podcasting, having two or more minds come together, the synergy, the integration, the the share of ideas. Um, made me think about David White's notion of the conversational nature of reality, that we could look at reality as this ongoing conversation, a give and take, a back and forth between us and the world around us, and really with all life throughout time and space, you know, that we're all affecting and influencing, and in a sense, creating each other together. So, without further ado, I bring you Keith Martin-Smith. Thanks for coming back on the podcast. Yeah, it's good to be back. Yeah. It's been, it's been a little while. It's been a little while. Yeah. So I think it was pre-pandemic, yep. actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so in that time, obviously, lots happened. And in your life, you've just come out with this new book, mm-hmm. which is called When the Buddha Needs Therapy. Mm-hmm. And I love the title. <laughs> it took me a little while to get to the title, but yeah. Oh, did it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you are, obviously, people can listen to the first podcast, but a long-time meditator, student of Zen, mm-hmm. an author, writer. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want to say to kind of introduce yourself? Uh, sure, yeah. I mean, I've uh, this is my fifth book, um, and uh, I've been studying in Zen and Vajrayana for about 25 years. Okay. 
and then I've been doing uh, I've been doing Chinese martial arts and qigong for thirty years. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so I have a really big embodiment practice, and then I would say that I I have a real passion and interest in uh, both trauma work and attachment theory, uh, and have done a lot of work on myself for those two things, which I'm sure we'll talk about today, um, uh, and have, have really done a lot of uh, research on those two topics. Hmm. That's beautiful. And are those more recent interests of yours, topics that don't? Yeah, yeah. yeah we're, I think um, uh, trauma work going back to about 2016 mm. and attachment work going back to maybe 2018 or 2019. So so relatively recent compared to the other fields. Yeah. Good, yeah. It seems like, I guess I have a similar progression in my life, like mm. getting really interested in meditation and Buddhism at an early age and then more drama therapy, psychology, healing as I got older in that you know, that dynamic play between them is such a rich topic. It's a huge part of my life. So I appreciated your, your work, your book. We can delve into some of the perspectives. Um, but it's, uh, I think in the world of Buddhism, of meditation, of spirituality in general, this is just a huge thing of like, how does psychological healing and growth relate to traditional spirituality, meditative paths, mm-hmm. things like awakening or enlightenment or something like Zen Buddhism and, mm-hmm. um, I think there's, yeah, so I think we can get into that, but there's just different perspectives, different ways to grapple with that. Totally, um, yeah. totally, yeah. And and I think, you know, it'd be interesting to talk, too, about the, the sort of historical perspective of it. Yeah. Because for a lot of these cultures, Japan, Tibet, uh, ancient China, hmm. um, you know, it seems pretty obvious that they didn't have a lot of the psychodynamic issues that we've created in the modern era that hmm. lead to attachment disorders and lead to trauma. Um, so they didn't need the technology, mm-hmm. the modern 20th century technology of psychotherapy, which was, of course, created in the West. That's, yeah, see, that's an interesting point. So I, I kind of just, in my mind, I just hold all these questions and kind of wonder, and I don't know the answers, obviously, but yeah, how much of our modern psychological issues are from the modern contemporary world, and how much of them are have kind of always been there and were addressed or not addressed by the traditions in different ways and like for example it's easy i think for modern people to kind of look at oh you're if someone's in a monastery their whole life it's easy for them to meditate and it's easy for them to become enlightened and are they missing out on development that happens when you have a family and kid and careers and all that yeah the householder path yeah yeah Yeah. Um, of course you could argue the opposite too so it's kind of it's actually an ancient kind of debate and Mm -hmm. thing in some ways um but yeah i have a friend who is an expert in attachment theory and his perspective is similar to what you just shared, that in traditional Tibetan culture, the majority of people were raised securely attached. And so it wasn't exactly. the issue that we have. And I don't know if that's true. It seems like that's what people think. It seems true, like just the traditional more indigenous societies, the way from birth, early childhood, becoming an adult was a more integrated held process. Right. Yeah. yeah, and I think in that, you know, the, in pre-modern societies, the family unit was set up in a way that was multi-generational. Mm-hmm. Uh, typically, you know, the women would, would be at home caring for the children around the clock. The men would be working, some version of work. Um, but the idea is the child was never really left alone. They were swaddled. They were held close. They mm-hmm. were always surrounded by people who loved them. There was no such thing as, you know, au pairs or babysitters or... Going off to kindergarten, daycares. Yeah, yeah, kindergarten at such a young age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you know we have to do it. Obviously, you know, of course, no judgment there. Um, but you know, if, mm-hmm. I do think it does help facilitate the crisis of um, attachment that we have. I think but, you're right. I think you're right. I think it's not our 
And it's not the way we evolved and were raised for thousands, tens of thousands of years to go off to kindergarten. Right. And that age seems like it keeps getting pushed earlier. It's like, yeah, you used to be five years old, right? Or six, you go to kindergarten and now it's like three years old, you're getting piano lessons or something or whatever <laughs> they're doing. Like right. the lessons, the training right. and the helicopter parents and the, yeah. the push to train your kids as hard as possible so they can succeed better. It's, it's huge cost, I think, at such a young age. Well, and what happens, you know, and, and I think part of the problem, you know, what, what we're dancing around here too, is when you get on a contemplative spiritual path and you begin to disidentify with the self in the process of meditation, um, as you deepen your practice and you, you become less and less attached to different ego structures that you've developed over a lifetime. The trouble when you have, like I have had attachment disorders is that, um, meditation can't see those things. Meditation Mm. can't, can't transform those things as long as they're unconscious. And your practice will always be limited if on a fundamental, deep, unconscious level, you don't feel safe. Mm. So if you don't feel safe and it's not conscious, you will be limited in how stably and how far you can actually awaken. Because no matter how deep a tension or how deep a, a spiritual experience may be, it can't be held in the body-mind because it, it's going right up against this unconscious knowing. Mm. that you're not safe in the world, which is mm. the antithesis of the awakening process, which is you are completely safe in the world because you are the world, right? Mm. Beautiful, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. So it's kind of ironic that in the modern world, something like or like safety on fundamental levels is so threatened or is so, I mean, because we, you know, we live in such a peaceful, prosperous society in so right. many ways, and yet on deeper less conscious levels, we don't feel safe. We don't feel secure. We right. don't know if, you know, for example, we are just talking about housing before we started recording. You know, if you don't right. own a house, or right. are you right. going to be able to pay rent? Or are you going to... Feed yourself, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's like, our cap, you know, it's partly capitalism. It's this, this competitive environment that we grow up in and that we push ourselves and that we have created a world or a society where it takes this constant effort to kind of keep running, to keep up with everything, mm-hmm. that kind of feeling, I think, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. versus a meditative path of like allowing everything to be as it is, mm-hmm. that deep rest and that deep insight that can happen through the clarity of letting everything be as it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be very conducive to a startup company or something, right? Or right. Take over the world with your company. Well, right. And it's, you know, for me, it's always that both end too, where, you know, I think there is a bit of a misnomer with the idea that as one awakens, they, um, they sort of sit around and contemplate their navel all day long. I've, <laughs> I've, I've had the luxury of working with a, with a, a number of really deeply realized teachers, and they're uh, they're very funny. They're highly mm. charismatic. You know, their, their personalities are, are fuller and more expressed than most people mm. by the very fact that they're not as identified with those personality structures. So they're mm. they're freer to be themselves That's beautiful. and they're freer to have things like ambition and things like that, or, or to build a company because what they're not is they're not attached. Hmm. And I think that's one of the really big misconceptions that blocks people's awakening is they future cast out and think, you know, they have a Kensho or they have a deep, a deep spiritual experience that's beyond self, hmm. but the self falls away. And then the first thing that happens as the self comes back online is it says, Oh shit, <laughs> you know, what if I don't, you know, hmm. does this mean I don't pay my taxes? You know, what about my kids? What about my wife? You know, oh my God, I've spent so much time. And they, it's an it's an anxiety response, future casting that, oh my hmm. God, am I just going to sit around and, 
and uh, you know stare at the wall all day long. Right. And I've had those deep experiences where I've been uh, completely beyond self for months at a time, and it you do everything that you would do in every given day. You, you show up at your job. You're very present with your partner. Mm. Um, you know, you go out have a beer with your friends on weekends, um, but you find that you just simply. You do you do things without any sense of needing to do anything. Mm, beautiful, you know? yeah, I love that. And, yeah. and so and so for me, the difference would be I would come home, say, and rather than saying put, putting on Netflix or picking up a book, I actually would just sit in a chair mm. and be very content to just sit in a chair. See, that's beautiful. Yeah. We, have, we have so much time actually if we took out watching the news and TV and right. social media. <laughs> right, right, right. Hours of the day. <laughs> right, right. I, I read some meme that really made me laugh the other day, but someone posted, uh, 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 I'm, I'm counting not taking my phone into the, into the bathroom as meditation time now. <laughs> yeah, there you go. It's better than something. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about anxiety. Like, there's this uh, separation anxiety from our phones now. Oh, for sure. Can I go to the bathroom without my phone? <laughs> there's some anxiety there. Right, I know. And you can feel it, too. Like, I'll walk yeah. out. And it's always curious to me, like, I'll walk out without my phone. And, you know, it's like, you really do feel like, I feel like a real, like, I'll feel a real anxious rush in my body. It's like, wow, it's fascinating. Yeah. Like, I'm anxious because I, I don't have my phone on me. Well, so um, to go off what you just said, someone who's awakened, being able to do a lot in the world, be more effective, that's mm -hmm. totally in the tradition. Like, For sure. So, and that's what meant to be coming from compassion. You know, like, if you're compassionate exactly. like, the activity in the world. But I think part of it is, like, if you're not holding on to your sense of self, then you're not holding on to a lot of fear. And so then you can take the chance. Maybe you start a company. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. But you don't have all the egoic fear of looking like a failure. Or, right? There's a little bit more there's, permission. There's, there's, yeah, I mean. A lot more permission. Well, I mean, yeah. So one of the central tenets of my book, what I talk about is, you know, I think another misnomer for people on the path is that there's a real sense, like a lot of the students that I work with, that people want to be liberated from life. Hmm. And they take the idea of you know, the Buddhist teachings and they, they want to be liberated from suffering. And um, in my experience, you know, that's not what the traditions are teaching us and that's not what the awakening path is about. We, we don't awaken from life, we awaken through life completely. Yeah. And that means through all the parts of life, mm. conflicts, you know, old age, sickness and death, you know, but it's like, mm. but all the things that we think we're trying to get away from, we don't actually get away from those things we just transform our relationship to those things beautiful yeah i love that right so yeah. you know and so the idea of getting away too um I, there's a great quote from Adashanti. i heard him speaking maybe a year or two ago and he said uh he said 95 that 95 percent of the questions that i get hmm. are all about the same thing and the question is how do i get away from this present moment <laughs> In one form or another. In one form or another, right? And say, yeah. how do I get away? You know, because he always gets asked, well, I had this experience. I had this experience then. You know, how do I? You know, and his, his pointing out is always the same. Like, mm. like, where are you right now? What You're talking about something, an awakening experience two years ago. Mm. So what? <laughs> what what's what's happening right here? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that with spiritual teachers, it's so easy to say something like that, but Adya Shante and some of the great masters, they seem like they're able to, like people have a sense they're living that, right? They're, For sure. Yeah, I mean, I think they're, if certainly with him, I, he's, in my opinion, he's very much walking the walk. I mean, I, I think yeah, he is highly, like re, highly realized, yeah. 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 Well, so um, I guess while it's on my mind to go back to this thing around psychological development, attachment stuff, trauma, yeah. and traditional societies, of course they would have their share of traumas. And I'm thinking about like Tibet in particular, but maybe 
there's an equivalent with Japan, but of like very young children were sometimes taken and recognized as a reincarnated master. A three-year-old right. would be put in a monastery, so right. they're removed from their family. And or a lot of people were put in monasteries at three, four, five years old. It was almost like yes. families couldn't care for this many kids. <laughs> they would offload That's them. right. That's right. And so the monasteries were a family, a family system. That's right. But um, they must have had, you know, there must have been some attachment issues happening with some of that. So. I mean, it would depend, right? It would depend what kind of care they received in the monastery. So if, yeah. you know, if they were given loving, complete, full, um, but being held in all the different ways that a, that a parent would hold them, they might not, be fine. they might not, and in fact, in some ways they might be good. They might be treated better in the sense because they have probably have, would have access to better food and they're being educated and you know right. they're, they're part of this whole you know they're suddenly they're part of this whole big world. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I'm yeah. not really sure. I guess I mean another thing in those cultures, it was very respected to be a part of a monastery. Oh, absolutely. And so that's something our culture doesn't have. We don't share that, but that's something that I think uh, is often subconscious or unconscious, but just the social status we give things. Yeah. You know? And yeah. Like, yeah, you went through this hard thing, but it was worth it, and you're able to get back, and you feel proud of your position in society. In our society, it's all about, it tends to all be about how much money you're making, right? Well, Those totally. I, but, yeah. I know a woman, um, she's actually, she's an author as, as well. She lives here in Boulder. But, you know, she has done uh, three, three-year retreats wow. in the Vajrayana tradition. That's amazing. And wow is the appropriate response, oh, right? But, but <laughs> it's ten years basically retreat. But most people, right? If you, to your point, most people, if you said that, they would, they would kind of go, huh? Right, right, totally. And like, what does that even mean? And why? Or, or yeah. what? Like, what are you getting away from? <laughs> you know, like, you, can't you make it in the real world? And even for oh, her, the, the, despite her realization and, and the discipline for that, she's struggled with a lot of regret. Because she basically said, I spent a decade of my life when I could have been learning more skills and how to better function and how to actually make money in this world. Yeah. And I spent that. And now I'm playing catch up. Yeah. Right? Because, because we don't live in a culture where it's like, oh, you, you, we value people that spent that kind of time. And so when they come out, there's a, there's a path for them. Because culture reckoned like the Tibetans or the Japanese yeah. or so many other places. If you go in the monastic path, um, there is a way for you to be fed and to have a vocation and to be teaching. And all those things were built into the process. Where as Westerners, if you do a three-year retreat or you do a three-month retreat or you do whatever, you know, even within the traditions themselves, mm -hmm. there is often not a path to help you integrate Absolutely. Yeah. that into into a fully capitalistic society. So you kind of yeah. get screwed. Yeah. You know? I think you're saying something really important. I've touched on it in the podcast before, but mm -hmm. I talked to someone who did a three-year retreat and they, it was a long time ago, but that they went into retreat for, it's really like three years, three months, three weeks or whatever. Uh -huh. They came out and like the iPhone had been invented. <laughs> like, what is this? But they're talking about that, like, yeah, regret or feeling behind. And I felt that in my life because I, I didn't do a three-year retreat, but I put a lot of time into going on retreats or studying Buddhism. Yeah. You know, going to school for it, all this stuff. Yeah. Can have that kind of sense. And I think it's a really important thing. And I think our society is growing and evolving, but there's some people that feel called to, you know, to use the word like shaman, a shamanic path, right. a healing path, or a explore consciousness, you know, explore meditation, explore spirituality, however you want to think about it, however you want to define those terms. It's clear that some percentage of people are really drawn to that. It's very important to them. It's the, it becomes 
perhaps the most important thing in their life, and yet our society tends to look down upon it, poo-poo it in a way that any other pre-modern society didn't. There's always a place for that. A necessity, I mean, yeah. deep, deep respect for it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, monasteries were really held sacred in both uh, Judeo-Christian culture and in... Right. Yeah, so... Yeah. Um, or the shaman or the healer and whatever. There's yeah, always yeah. that role. Yeah, deeply valued, yeah. Um, you know, I, I think the good news is we are, you know, as we, we move into 2023 here, I think we are living in a time where with the incredible innovations that are happening around psilocybin, MDA, ketamine, um, and mm-hmm. other other therapies like that, ayahuasca, that's yeah. the one I was missing. Yeah. Um, I think there is, even in the mainstream, there's an opening awareness that um, the, these sort of more quasi-shamanistic paths where people are doing a kind of visioning and a kind of journeying, I mean, the data sets are overwhelming how effective these things are against treating PTSD, against treating attachment disorder, against yeah. the, treating all kinds of depressive compulsive depression. Yeah. Um, and so I think even in the cynical, skeptical West, there is, there is an opening because they're realizing when these when these medicines are done in a clinical setting, they're less effective than when they're done in a ceremonial setting, which is also mm. what the research is showing. That's um, cool to hear that. Yeah. You know, scene and setting. Uh, Michael Pollan's book, How to Change How to yeah. Change Your Mind. They talked about you know when they did um, when they did psilocybin journeys with people, did research, and they did did them in like a, a lab kind of a setting. Fluorescent lighting. Yeah, people had, <laughs> Terrible experiences, like this, you know, and so then they would they build a room like this. They would build a little like like a den that, yeah. would, that would be in a research hospital that was like you know had a record player and posters and a fish yeah. tank, and and then they would take them on journeys there. Yeah, and they noticed that they would have a much more profound experience. Totally, in the scene and setting, and then then it's, then it's a it's a pretty short extrapolation. Well, then if you have an ayahuasca ceremony being run by, say, a Peruvian shaman who's trained, who can hold an energetic container. Um, yeah. And then with the music, suddenly, like, it, you know, I, I think there is a, I, I think there is a growing appreciation for the role of the esoteric, which is beginning to come through, which I'm, I'm sort of excited that absolutely. we get, we get yeah. to live through this time. Yeah. You know, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's really growing. It's really happening. I think psychedelics, people talk about the psychedelic renaissance or revolution. Mm-hmm. We've talked about that on the podcast and it's a pretty big part of my life. And it's just, I think it, Gives people a permission slip to open up to new ways of seeing things, new realities, mm-hmm. um, and not, you know, and obviously more than that, it changes your reality, it changes your mind in such a fundamental way that you are forced to recognize the power of consciousness. That consciousness is our, what our world is, what we experience, and you can see that one way or the other so clearly. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's helping our culture to to shift into some new ways of being that we need. But your your example of let's test. LSD or psilocybin in a laboratory with the bright fluorescent lightings and guys in lab coats and right. the walls are all this horrible color and yeah. you're in an uncomfortable chair. And it's like, terrifying. How, <laughs> how like, oh, I'm nervous already. <laughs> just hearing that. I mean, how disconnected from your environment do you right. have to be to even conceive of that? Well, well, it just, and it just it shows the pathological cutting off from natural systems and nature yeah. that we have in the West that it wouldn't occur to them that like, oh, maybe we should, maybe we could do a good clinical setting, but it, it could be outside. Yeah. You know, like, does it have, does it have to be at a fucking laboratory, you know? It's amazing, that like, <laughs> it's amazing that this is like a scientific discovery. Like, you know, we're so advanced, we're discovering that it matters your environment. That you're yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's like, like LSD 101, right? A scene <laughs> and setting. Yeah. <sighs> It's good. I guess we can pay some respect to the pioneers of the 50s and 60s who... Like Stan Groff. You yeah, know, Stan Groff. Like, you know, like, I mean, he was doing pioneering psychedelic research in the 60s, and the, I yeah. guess it was the Czech Republic back then. Yeah. If memory serves. I think, I think you're right. The Czech yeah. Republic. 
Uh, but he's he, amazing. He is amazing. Yeah, because yeah. like, he's he's got to be in his nineties now. So I um, saw him talk in 2017 in Oakland, and um, I didn't have any expectations going in. Ton of people there, big auditorium. Um, his talk was 100% Tibetan Buddhism. He even put up the Wheel of Life. Oh wow! And was talking about uh, the different realms you can be reborn in according to the tradition. Uh-huh. He's like all of this. You know, he's written all that LSD research, but yeah, it's like man, this guy is like speaking the Dharma. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't expect it to be that in alignment with traditional yeah. Buddhism. Yeah, and he's a psychiatrist. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, he's a, he's a Western-trained psychiatrist, yeah. not, a, not a therapist, uh, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, so it's beautiful when, when I think someone that is educated that deeply in the Western model and they're able to come to appreciate the Eastern wisdom and really, and this, this is what my book is about and, and, and what a lot of people are doing now, the, this idea of integrating. Because yes, yeah. the West has a lot to offer. Yeah, I mean, we have yeah. so much to offer yeah. um, and so much to learn. Yeah. You know? and, and so for me, it's when, when we really begin to blend these two models with, with a lot of intelligence and care and nuance, um, it makes so much more possible for us as practitioners, as humans, than was possible a generation ago. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's an exciting time. Yeah. I love that word integration, obviously. I think, you know, it's, to me, it's like the, come to represent like the most fundamental, important part of the path of growth. Like, because if you, you're talking about having these, like in your book, you do a beautiful job talking about these powerful spiritual experiences. Right. And then there's like, you know, the experience and there's coming back to your normal life and that. that and, and how unintegrated they were. Yeah. 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 I think a lot of people can relate to that. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I think so, especially in a culture that doesn't, as I say in the book, you know, uh, you know, had all these sort of spontaneous spiritual experiences that began happening as I was a teenager. And, and uh, there was no reference point for me then. Mm-hmm. You know, literally, like, I didn't know anything yeah. about Buddhism. I'd never read mystical Christianity. Yeah. Um, so I was really concerned that I was going crazy. Yeah. Because um, I didn't know anyone. Nobody was talking about it. Nobody. Uh, and then it was only when I got a little further into my 20s that I realized that by reading Ken Wilber, that like, oh, there's there's a whole world of yeah. people that have had these experiences and they've written about them and there's practices, this thing called Buddhism, you know, and it was <laughs> like, and I suddenly went from just being really afraid and alone to um, to realizing that I was really gifted in some ways, these experiences, because it, mm. it put me on the path before I knew there was a path. Yeah. And then so when when then when I learned there were practices and trainings um, and methodologies to, to begin training the mind. It was it was really beautiful to be able to have a way to sort of begin to discipline the the wild awakening things that were happening to me spontaneously and very disruptively. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was going to say, um, yeah, that was a part of the book that's stuck out to me. But to be able to make sense of our life and yeah. tell a coherent story that we understand and makes sense, and experiences like that can be so disruptive that we have this concept of spiritual emergency. Some exactly. Ending up in like a psych ward. Stan Groff again. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Christina Groff. Yeah, they, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. But I think it's that's a real thing. And I've talked to some people that had a kind of breakdown from an intensive meditation retreat, or obviously it can happen with psychedelics. It happens all the time. It's like kind of the shadow side. Someone For sure. has no idea what they're getting into. It's a bad side of studying. It's a chaotic party, or their girlfriend broke up with them, or they're, you know, and they can have a kind of breakdown. And it's tricky, yeah. right? Because so I would argue that. That meditation and 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 hallucinogenics work the same way on the on the on the brain, the physical mm. brain. Um, if you meditate long enough, you do a Zen retreat or you know Vajrayana retreat or Vipassana retreat, where you know you're meditating all day long every mm. day for days on end. Um, 
the the default mode network of the mind, the thing that makes you you, makes me me, and you know, like the, that network gets very disrupted when you're sitting by yourself and you have nothing to reflect back the stories that and the narratives and the opinions and the valuations and all the things that make you you, which is really just the way your neural pathways are conditioned to responding. Our brains are very similar. Your brain just reacts to stimuli different than mine. That's why yeah. you're different than me. <laughs> and meditation and hallucinogenics disrupt that network. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly the brain has a lot more neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. And so you're open to experiencing all kinds of things, including the numinous, you know, including yeah. the quote unquote spiritual, the transcendental. Um, and it can be very disruptive to someone who doesn't have a strong enough ego to be able to withstand the dismantling of that ego. Mm. You know, I mean, there's nothing more terrifying than when you, when you have the, the experience of losing the self, it's very liberating and empowering. But when the experience fades and you come back, if there isn't a strong ego that understands, as you said, under, has a context, yeah, a map to put it in. Yeah. And if you don't, if your ego isn't strong enough to be comfortable with it being dissolved, Mm. Right, that can lead to all kinds of you know psychosis or or I mean, I've seen people have I've seen people go completely have complete psychotic breaks oh. on Zen retreats. Oh, I mean, wow. complete yeah. psychotic break. Um, and I've seen a lot of people have less uh, less disruptive experiences, but highly traumatic emotional experiences when they're sitting in stillness for so long mm. because what comes up is all the things that you haven't looked at. Yeah, which a lot of times for us in the West can be our trauma. Yeah, right? exactly. So yeah. Sitting awesome. quietly and all of a sudden, boom. Yeah. Uh oh, I feel profoundly unsafe. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I think honestly, it's good for people to be aware of all the stuff going into an intensive meditation retreat, and a lot of people aren't, frankly. I, I mean, and I think there's more and more. There's a great talk with uh, Gabor Mate, oh, okay. uh, uh, Realm of the Hungry Ghosts. Yeah. You know, he's a he's a brilliant, no, he's yeah, brilliant uh, medical doctor, great author. And he was sitting and talking with Adashanti, oh. uh, like an hour long interview. Oh, I think Gabor was actually interviewing Adashanti, sort of, but they really were just talking, yeah. you know, kind of like you and I are talking. Um, and Gabor really sort of took Adashanti to task a little bit for saying that, you know, you've been leading all these meditation retreats all these, all these years, and I imagine that there's a lot of times that people go into a deeply traumatic response. Mm. And Adashanti essentially said, you're right, mm. um, it has happened. My only excuse is I didn't know anything about trauma. Wow. Like I'm, com- I'm completely yeah. ignorant about trauma. So I, I didn't have a map as a teacher that I could orient any people that were struggling except for contemplative Zen map, mm. right? Which is useless if you're having a traumatic response. You need Western psychotherapy, yeah. right? So yeah. this, is, this is exactly what we're talking about here. So yeah. even Adishanti with all the teaching and all of his wisdom, um, he's still in the process of learning in his own retreats. Oh, I should probably have someone on staff mm. who can be useful if someone has some sort of a psychodynamic reaction yeah. Yeah. that's outside of the purview of Zen. Yeah. Or awakening. I couldn't agree more. And if I had heard this 15, 20 years ago, I probably wouldn't have agreed. But now I'm like, yeah, that's actually true. Well, but <laughs> back in the really day, important. back in the day, like my teacher, Junpo, you know, he, he really, I mean, he did a lot of, he tried to do a lot of integrative psychotherapeutic work, but he did hold the idea that, and, and I fundamentally disagree with this. Yeah. He held the idea that 
Awakening is awakening. Mm. And if you fully awaken, you fully awaken. Mm -hmm. There are no shadows. Mm -hmm. right? the, the, the mind is fully illuminated. Yeah. And what I always said to him is, I think that's a good theory. That's sort of like mm -hmm. what all the spiritual texts promise. Yeah. But I said, have you met anybody <laughs> that's fully awakened? He said, no. <laughs> and the trouble is that's always the case. None of us have met someone, huh. none of us, that's so awakened yeah. that they don't have any shadows. And what I would maintain is that the awakening process can only awaken what is what what is already in consciousness itself. So you can't awaken a shadow, no matter how awake you become, because it's in shadow. And I mean in shadow, not kind of in shadow, the things mm. that I actually can't see, mm. like the things I can't see at all that are unconscious. Um, I can't awaken what's unconscious mm. by definition. Yeah. Now, once it becomes conscious, then you can use the contemplative practices mm. to then illuminate and transform, transmutate, and, yeah. and release and release those things. Um, and I and I think that's that's part of what explains why so many deeply awakened teachers have gotten into trouble doing yeah. really stupid things. And why are you fucking your students? Why are you? Yeah. Why do you have weird power issues? You know, and you know yeah. these, these sort of things that you hear about these teachers. Well, how do you explain that? And you know, people that are skeptical of of uh, contemplative practices and spirituality will say, well, because they're they're frauds. Because the whole right. the whole game is a fraud, right. and it's always about power, and it's a, and that's not true. I don't think at all, um, but it is true that they're human beings, and mm -hmm. they awakened much of their consciousness, but they didn't awaken their shadows, and so they still have behavior that's deeply problematic. Yeah, yeah. No, I feel I'm really excited talking to you because this is the kind of thing that I'll like debate in my mind or think about, and then it's so cool to be able to have a podcast and like really go into it. And but this um, thing you just said about your teacher, Jinpo Roshi, like awakening is awakening. Right. And if you look, because I spent, I got a master's in Buddhist studies. I spent time with the traditional texts and these amazing, beautiful teachings. And they do say, you know, they say, that's what they say. That's so what awakening say. is awakening. The Buddha is fully awakened. There's no shadow for the Buddha. What right. are you talking about? And so the Buddha doesn't need therapy. What are you talking about? Right, right, right. <laughs> no, I know. Right, right, right. Yeah, the, I, I got some grief around the title because this very idea. How, how dare you? Yeah, of course the Buddha needs fucking therapy. <laughs> And of course he does. Well, I think what part of he, what, I mean, he was he was he was a little bit you know he was he was uh, <laughs> he was a little bit repressed. I would say you know like, would, you, would you really want to hang out with like do you have want to have a beer at the Buddha? You know it was probably wasn't any fun. I wonder um, something that popped out when you're speaking is the difference between theory and reality. And yeah, maybe the theory is perfect. You know, like. In a sense, like it's that's true theoretically. But have you ever met anyone who actually was there? And, well, it's an, so, to me, it's an archetype. It's an archetype, right? So, are, are, are archetypes true? Well, you, you know, that's an interesting sort of whole mm. side discussion, right? Archetypes are archetypes. They're not the divine masculine, the divine feminine, it's like a vision, right? the hermit, the the um, the rebel, the you know, all these things. Like they're they're true in that we can embody their energy to a certain point in different parts in our, of, of our lives. Um, mm -hmm. And I think the awakened, the fully awakened Buddha, it, it's just an archetype. It's not meant to mm -hmm. be, I think there's a real problem of historical projection where people want the Buddha or want their teacher mm -hmm. to be perfect. You mm -hmm. know, and a, a big part of, you know, what I try to talk about in the book that we as practitioners, um, we need to be willing to hold our teachers accountable to their shadows. It's no mm -hmm. longer enough to just blame the teacher 
when they screw up. But it's like, well, yeah. what were you doing? Yeah. You know, why did you expect your teacher to be beyond their humanity? Yeah. That's on you. That's your responsibility. That's not their responsibility. Now, they may be playing into it. Right. But it's your responsibility as a student to look at your teachers with some degree of skepticism. Yeah. And to not and if that teacher believes that there's such a thing as fully awakened, you know, I would I look at their behavior really closely to yeah. see what they're up to because you're probably gonna find some behavior that's problematic. Sure. That's shadowy. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think and I think to give them credit, the traditions you know, traditionally had a lot of more accountability than we might yes. think and give them credit for. And they, were, yes. they would be criticized. I mean, if you were the abbot of a monastery and you were considered enlightened and people were making offerings to you, you also had hundreds of monks who were watching you all the time. You, you did. have a lot of private time. And there was also, there was, there was a, you know, Dharma combat was a real yeah. thing where you, yeah. where you would, you know, an, another, another monk would come in sure. yeah. and listen and then be like, you know, this guy's full of shit. Yeah. And then challenge your, right to be the head of that school, you know, Dharma yeah. Combat, where it was like, so yeah. there was a, there was a kind of a martial element to it, if you will, at Absolutely. least in Japan. Yeah. I, I don't know about Tibet. There, I, I think there, was, Tibet there well. was in Tibet in the form of a debate. And, yeah. Well, and, and I know like the Hindus and the, and the Buddhists, you yeah, know, they, they, they have, they yeah. have beautiful debates yeah. between, between them. Yeah. And it was, it was taken very seriously historically. Like if you yeah. lost the debate in public, you had to convert to the other person's school. That's right. It was a huge deal. The consequences were very real. Very real. Yeah. Yeah, and so in that sense, there was that, that. To me, that's the accountability that you weren't just going to go and open a school and begin training, mm -hmm. and people would just be like, oh, "Great, you know, we'll just let let this teacher do their thing." Like people were going to come by, listen to you, watch what you're doing, look mm -hmm. at your students, and challenge you if if yeah. if they didn't feel that your insight was deep enough. Yeah, yeah, it's so important. I think um, when I think about integration and integrating with the world, I, one of the biggest things in my life has been both and instead yeah. of either or. Sure. And so just, I keep coming back to that. It keeps coming. I had a therapist I worked with who would often, because when you're talking about your problems or issues, it's often this and this, but and you would say, well, what about this and this and? And, and that's really changed my life. <laughs> and so like, you know, maybe awakening is real and there's all the human elements and the students need to take some responsibility because it's like what you're saying, there needs to be the accountability, there needs to be a dialogue. It's for, yeah. And there is, yes, I, and I think both ends is a great way to look at it. And I want to be clear, too, that, you know, I do, both, both of my own experience and I'm working with, like I said, with a lot of teachers, the really highly realized teachers do, their disidentification with the self can really free them from a lot of the neurotic trappings and, mm. um, psychodynamic problems that might plague the rest of us. Mm -hmm. I, I've very much seen that as well. So I don't want to imply that sure. you know, every yeah. teacher out there is you know, doing something shady in the background. I, I have seen something close to what Junpo was talking about, the idea that mm. um, deeply realized teachers, the, the nature of their egoic consciousness gets transformed in that process. And, and it is different than a normal person's consciousness. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think it's really important to, to say that. I think that, yeah, I agree with that completely. I think that deep transformation awakening is totally possible. And it's, a, to me, a very complex, very nuanced thing because there's such a big role in how we interpret and how we understand and, um, you know, can become so relative. Is this particular action, is this particular thing that happened good or bad? That can be a complex question. 
And there's, I can give different examples of it, but well, and so. and, that, and then you get into a problem, you know, where good and bad, you you do eventually in your practice transcend the idea of good and bad, right? Right, where yeah. you realize that, yeah. that that's just part of the relative ego game, anyway. Well, here, here's there, a, there is no good and bad, right? I mean, from a certain perspective, it, things, yeah. things just are. Here's an example, just to throw out there. I'm not particularly taking sides, but um, mm-hmm. what's his name? So Yalmer Bishay was very uh-huh. revered Tibetan Lama. Uh-huh. He apparently was about to give a big Dharma. You know, Buddhist teaching on this big group. So, Sir Gilbert Boucher, so the, yeah. the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So, one story I heard about him is he's about to give this big talk, and they're preparing for the talk, and he's up there in the front, and there was a nun who was serving him, mm-hmm. and he punched her in the stomach mm-hmm. because she did something wrong. Mm-hmm. And then he went up and gave his talk, and people were kind of outraged. And then later, other scandals around him emerged, and yes. the story emerged as an example of his abusive behavior. Yes. But I read an interview where the interviewer talked to the nun, and she was like, oh, that was a great teaching for me. He's my most revered holy you know, guru. <laughs> so from her point of view, at least as she's expressing it, that wasn't a negative, bad moment of abuse. That was a moment of teaching. And so I'm just, I'm not taking sides. I'm just pointing out the role of the well, right. session. And, yeah. and that, that, is, that does get tricky, you know, if, it, right, that, that's actually a great, that's a great sort of opaque thing to sit with. <laughs> Um, you know, I mean, my, so my teacher, Junpo, we had the, you know, I'd been training with him for I don't know, three or four months. And um, I met him at this house and we sat, you know, literally like knee, knee to knee in, mm. in, in a Zazen posture oh, wow. and eye gazing. Oh, wow. So just, you know, he's there and we have, he has a, he has a bell between us, a Japanese bell. He's, he's ringing it, right? So mm. he's, he's saying, just follow the sound to silence. And he's just locked into my eyes. So for about 45 minutes, we're there, you know, just staring in, in, in each other's eyes. And he was, he's watching, he's waiting. Mm. And after about 45 minutes, my mind went completely clear, mm. complete samadhi, no self, just one, one face looking at, looking at itself, one Buddha. Yeah. And he, as soon as that happens, he sees it and he raises an eyebrow and he says, can anyone make you angry? Mm. And I, so I was there in this luminous state. And then I thought, and I looked, and my posture collapsed. And I thought, well, yeah, like my girlfriend, she, she, and I start telling a story about, yeah, like she, you know, she makes me angry when, and mm. I go from this luminous state to this very contracted, very much yeah. in my default mode network, Keithness. Yeah. And as I'm speaking, he takes the mallet, the wooden mallet, and he comes up, he raises his arm, and he strikes me right across my temple, like really hard, like oh. enough that it turns my head to, 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 to my right. And, uh, and I sat there stunned, right? So, it's like, so I was raised in a corporal uh, uh, Catholic environment, you mm. know, it was like corporal punishment and mm. some backhanding and male elders. And so, so I, I have a huge trigger around that sort of like mm. patriot. Punishing patriarchy kind of yeah. thing, and I'm a highly trained martial artist. So he hits me, and I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, I can't believe this old fucker just hit me. Like, like, never again. Like, I don't let people treat me this way. Oh. And this rage, this white hot rage, comes up in my chest, and I really, I think I was going to throttle him. You know, like oh. I, oh. I turn back to him, and he has tears in his eyes, mm. and. Uh, and he leans in, he leans really in close to my face and, and he says, brother, this is life and death. Get it. Mm. And I saw, boom, 
that no one had ever made me angry. Mm. That I'd always chosen anger. As a response. As a response to deeper feelings, but that I was never the victim of being made angry or being made to feel anything, wow. right? So it was a pure transmission, a true transmission. Um, but he struck me in the face wow. with a mount, yeah. <laughs> you know, like from a certain perspective. If someone, if yeah. you, if someone just had a video of that, right. they'd be like, well, that's abusive. Right. He, he, he's abusing his students. But from your point of view, that was a... It was one of the most transformational moments of my entire life. That's amazing. Yeah. So I, mean, I don't know... When, yeah. when Soyo punched this nun in the stomach, I don't know, yeah, I don't know what that relationship was between the two of them. Right. I don't know if he was transmitting. He could have been being an asshole. Right. Right. I, I don't know. He didn't pour my tea right or some bullshit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, and, and he just. Yeah. But her, her experience of it is more relevant than mm. my opinion of it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's fair to say. Yeah, that's <laughs> to say. That's her life. I mean, yeah. That's a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that. I'm just. Imagine the vulnerability and strength on the part of Jumbo to do that, right? He, he had a great, so, yeah, so we gave, so I wrote his memoir in 2012 uh, called A Heart Blown Open, and that story's in it. And when mm -hmm. I did a book reading, I, I read that part of the mm -hmm. book as part of the reading. He was, he was in the audience. And uh, so he comes up afterwards for the Q&A. And someone said, uh, as a question, do you hit all of your students? Oh. And so everybody laughs, you know. Um, he makes a few jokes, um, but he, he said, um, he, he said, I didn't hit him. Mm. He, he said, he said, what happened was, you know, we were sitting, we were locked in this thing and I was dropped into pure awareness. Mm. And next thing I know, my hand comes up and strikes him across the face. Oh, wow. And he said, then I think, oh shit, <laughs> I just hit a fully trained martial artist, a, a tournament fighter. And he's getting really pissed off. I can see it. And, and he said, so my only choice was to just completely drop it. Just mm. drop everything and be, be pure presence itself. So when, he, when I turned back to him, I was, met, I was just met by presence. Right? Yeah. So there's the, the tears communicated that. And the tears were just his, I mean, he loved me, you know, mm. like, and it was like the, the, what was heartbreaking to him was that I was living my life believing that people could make me angry. Mm. So can we, I'd love to ask you more about that. It's a big part of the book. I think you do a good job writing about it, but again, that's going to be confusing to a lot of people to, sure. to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, how would it be helpful to go into it, do you think? Well, you have the chapter called There Are No Victims in Zen, right? No victims and in Zen. No one can make you angry. Um, so again, we come back to that both and, because in the book you have the both and. It's very much a both yeah. and. Yeah. So in our culture, you know, there is a lot, especially with identity politics and ideas right. around systemic racism and, um, you know, we're talking about trauma stuff and attachment stuff. So victimization is real, right? It, it happens, obviously. Yeah. Uh, like I was victimized in some ways as a child. Mm. Um, you know, certain groups and subgroups in our, in our culture, Western culture, are victimized because of who they are, how they look, or, you know, their gender choice or whatever. Mm. That's all very real. Um, and you, you want to be very careful that you don't remove the truth and the impact and the damage that's done when someone is victimized. Mm. So that's, that's true. And, and, <laughs> um, it's also true that at some point you have to 
let go of your identity as a victim mm. if you ever want to be free from it. Um, and the example I used in the book was that if you went to a coach and the coach worked with you for two years and all the coach ever told you was, it's not your fault that you're not successful. It's not your fault that you're not making money. You know, we, it's the patriarchy, it's your mom, <laughs> right, right. It's, it's your color. And if that was what the coach genetics. told you for, yeah, for, for two years and you're paying them, hmm. well, that would be a pretty frustrating experience because yeah. all they will be doing would be validating the fact that you're a disempowered victim. Mm -hmm. And so there's, you, can't, yeah. you can't get any traction in life. So at some point you have to say, I was victimized and I'm going to choose now to disidentify with the victim to find the power inside of that yeah. and to be able to move forward as a, as a more autonomous agent. And so the way I like to describe it is that in my own life, what happened to me, the, the, the abuse and the traumas that happened to me in my childhood, they weren't my fault, mm. obviously. Right. Obviously, they're not my fault. That's an important point that it's easy to know that conceptually, but to really feel it emotionally and in a fully integrated way, like we're talking about, like, that's the, a lot of therapies. And, that, and, and for me, it's not, it's not my fault means that sometimes when, I re, when I'm reactive mm. in a relationship, that's not your fault either. I realize, oh, that's not my fault. That, that's what got put into me. Yeah. yeah. But it is one fucking 100% my responsibility. Yes. It's not yeah. culture's responsibility. It's not the government's responsibility. Yeah. It's not my mother's responsibility. It is my responsibility and my responsibility alone. And I have to choose to take responsibility for what wasn't my fault mm. in order to heal myself and to make sure that I don't continue to inflict damage on the relationships that I'm in due to my trauma mm. and then perpetuate this victim cycle where then I make a victim of other people mm -hmm. to me, just the way I was made a victim. And eventually I got to the realization in my own life and my own practice, had an insight really that, you know, that it wasn't the fault of my mother either, yeah. you know, who's, who's yeah. sometimes my abuser. But it wasn't her fault. Yeah. You know, she was never able to take responsibility. But mm. what she did to me got put into her. Mm. It's not, not her fault. So this idea that no one can make me angry, right? So this is one of Jim Poe's teachings. But the idea is that if we're sitting here having a conversation and you say something, and I say, well, Julian really just fucking pissed me off with <laughs> what he said, you know, yeah. it, it's that puts that makes me a victim of you. Right. As opposed to well, you said something and there's impact over here mm. uh, and there's a lot coming up and there's angers wanting to come up at you. But really, what it, can we talk about the impact? Mm. You know, I, I feel really insulted by what you just said to me. So I'm, I'm really angry at you. You're owning your experience. You're naming it. And anger can be like this. I mm. could be like, hey, brother, yeah. like, I'm, I'm really angry at you. I'm really angry at you right now. Can we talk about that? Mm. There's no reason. That, it doesn't have to be you, all the, all the noise. You're yeah. not acting it out, yeah. right? Because you're owning the experience because you actually can't make me angry. Mm. I'm choosing anger on some level. Mm. Choosing it. Because I could say, my example is that if you cross a, a homeless person with, you know, a, who's mentally ill in the street and they say something to you, you know, and you go, they really insulting to you. you know, mm. And you go, oh gosh, you know, you're this, this poor person, you know. Right. And, and you go about your business and then you go home and your partner says the exact same thing in the exact same way. Mm -hmm. And you go, Oh my God, you fuck you. I can't believe you said that. Like, it's unbelievable that you, right. how dare you? I, you know, 
And what's changed? All that's changed is your relationship to the words. You you took some of them in and made yourself a victim of them, Mm -hmm. as opposed to saying, honey, you're saying those things. That's actually quite hurtful. Can we we talk about this? Yeah, the homeless person, just, it's just dismissive. And just, it's just noise. And just noise, yeah. And, and then take and, it seriously. And you don't let it get in. Right. Right. Does, does that make sense? Is yeah, that, that's is making it, sense. That... The way you're talking about it is good. I think um, to be able to have your emotions, feel them, not blame other people for them. Uh-huh. Is, so you can, like you were saying, you can feel the anger. I'm feeling angry. But you're not acting it out. You're not suppressing it. You're not going into victim mode, but you're... Yeah, I think the most important thing with anger is not denying it, right? Not repressing it. Yeah, not repressing yeah, it. Yeah, you know, it's really important that you that you are able to to feel because really, in my experience, what anger is, anger really, and its pure form is is just simply clarity. Hmm. So there there's a sense of okay. <clears throat> so if we slow this down, right? It's like I mean, one of the benefits of meditation when you meditate for a long time is what seems like instantaneous internal processes become much slower in your subjective experience. You see the parts of them. Right. So so if I say, well, you know, I just sometimes I just fly into a rage, right? It's like, okay, so you spend some time, maybe some years on a meditation cushion. You learn how to train your mind so that you can actually, from a place of awareness, watch the ego process come into formation. Mm -hmm. And when you have that capacity, what you can see really clearly is that before I'm able to get angry at someone, I have, I have to feel care first. Caring has to arise out of emptiness. So you say something to me and I feel care of like, oh, that's hurtful. Or I care about that thing. You can't get angry if you don't care. Yeah. It is actually impossible. No one has ever gotten angry in the history of humanity if they didn't care about something. It's, it's a good point, yeah. So what, so what arises first? If when you slow the mind down, what you feel in your direct experiences, you feel care arise. Yeah. And then usually after the care, you feel some version of fear. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then anger arises in reaction to care and fear. Yeah. And then, but because, because most people haven't trained their minds and because the process happens so quickly, they don't perceive the care and the fear arising, all they experience consciously is anger. Yeah. Therefore, yeah. you made me angry. It'd yeah. be more accurate to say, you really made me realize how much I care about this thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's actually a truer statement. It's more true, yeah. A good example, I think you gave this example in your book, but I use it with people I work with a lot, is like someone cuts you off in traffic. Mm-hmm. So like you're mm-hmm. driving alone. I mean, for some reason, in our society or modern world, that's just such an instant ah, anger. For a lot of people. Yeah. Because it's, a, it's nothing but a pure projection. It's that fucking asshole over there. Right. Whereas if you were sitting across from, quote, unquote, that fucking asshole in a bar, it, you, you immediately would have a sense of their humanity. Right. Unless you were a psychopath, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't start screaming yeah, like, and yelling at them at the top like of a, your the lungs. The car, like, cuts off the sense of humanity. You know? Yeah, there's just someone in a, in a metal box right. that you can hardly see. A robot. <laughs> right. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I've worked with a lot of students oh. who, who struggle with road rage, you know, and it's, uh, yeah. and it's that same thing of, like, can you, what's really going on here? What, yeah. What do you care about that's violated here? Yeah. Something about home. It's like my autonomy. It's they're safety. not respecting me, my safety, right? It's like, well, great. Well, you know, if you're in touch with that, the explosive violence 
doesn't come out then. Yeah. You know? So if I'm, yeah, actually on this subject, if I'm honest, I have some issues around that. Like I'll get really angry driving and I didn't, I remember pretty clearly, I didn't used to be that way in my 20s when I was more meditating, more honestly, more focused mm-hmm. on that. And so I think with personal development, I'm hope you know, things can go in a good direction, but they can also go in the other direction sometimes. And so for me, the road ragey thing, not that I'm like super road rage, but that I'm getting having the <laughs> unnecessary anger and like getting pissed off. And it's like, if I'm, if I'm rushing yeah, and then there's a traffic thing or someone cuts me off, but if I am leaving and giving myself enough time, I can be more relaxed. So that's been a piece of it for me. It's a big piece of it into it. And I think like in some of the mind trainings I've done, this is more of a Vajrayana training, but, um, you know, every time that you feel a strong emotion, um, it's pulled, you can access its polar opposite. Mm. So for instance, if, if someone cuts me off and I feel this like rage, <clears throat> but what I'm saying is that because care is actually under it, you can run a polarity through where you can actually feel deep empathy and mm. caring, mm. which is the antithesis of it. And they, they actually have to both be arising. Oh, well, yeah. Right? So that, that's kind of, that's part of the process. Whenever you have a strong charged emotion arise, you can train your mind so that you can sort of see through the tunnel. Mm. And even if you can only see a little tiny piece of mm. what, what its opposite might be, if you can hold that polarity in your mind, you begin to train the mind to be able to uh, begin to transcend the dualism of mm. our ego consciousness. So you don't have to get, so something like someone cutting you off or a, you know, a place where you fly into a rage can be a place of tremendous practice and insight for sure because yeah. it's 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 powerful fuel you don't want to not have those things happen you want those things to happen mm. because if your mind is trained that can be very much a path to awakening yeah you have to have that attitude that willingness to work with it to wake up there to bring more consciousness online yeah because yeah. everything is as it is and there can be no other way right <laughs> by definition it's like a zen saying yeah. But if that's the case, then your life is as it is, and it can be no other way. So in any moment, you know, the guy cutting you off is part of things being the way they are. Mm. Why resist what is? So mm. what can you learn out of the experience? Yeah, because you're not, gonna, you're not gonna change that karmic interaction mm-hmm. except by taking ownership of your experience. Yeah. Which is what mm. I just said a moment ago. Right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and there's probably some role in the way I'm driving, right? <laughs> yeah, well, sure. I mean, it could be like practical things to look at. Um, but this all gets into, yeah, you know, that's why in the, in the book I talked a lot. I started the chapter off with identity politics because, right. um, because identity is, and especially a spiritual identity, is a huge problem on any genuine spiritual path. Mm. You know, not to have, you have to have an identity. If you don't have an identity, you're, you're, you're psychotic. Mm. Um, but it's our attachment to our identities. You know, like, like I say in the book, that it isn't that it, what starts war, what starts wars between countries, isn't dueling ideologies. Mm. It's attachment to the mm. dueling ideology. It's yeah. the it's the belief that the Republicans are full of shit and that they're idiots mm-hmm. and they don't deserve to exist. Um, that's what causes war, as opposed to the Republicans hold views that I don't feel or in the best interest of our country moving forward. Yeah. Well, that, that's something you can sit down and talk to somebody. Yeah. But they're, an important point. they're yeah. idiots who don't know what they're doing and they're the problem. They don't respect the women. They're destroying the environment. Right. Well, 
that's all great, but that's creating so much conflict inside of your own mind. You're at war in your mind with your projection of what a Republican is. Right. Um, that's, that is not going to work well on your spiritual path. Yeah. And the pol- it seems like the polarities are driving each other farther apart, escalating, mm-hmm. because on the other side, it's doing that same dance, and it's just getting mm-hmm. worse and worse. And mm-hmm. Yeah, it's wild. We live in wild times, honestly. I mean, I think it's always been wild times. Right? <laughs> you know what I mean? I think that's part, part of the karma yeah, really of, right. of, a, of a human existence. I mean, it really, I mean, I think about, you know, I mean, imagine, imagine it being our age and, like, it being 1955 and, like, having lived through two world wars. Right, and the like threat that, of nuclear holocaust. Yeah, I mean, that, like, that's, yeah. that's fucking crazy. You know, like, I mean, I think about, you know, having gone through <clears throat> a world war and then, what, yeah. and then, uh, what is it, uh, tw- less than 20 years later, another world war breaks out mm. like that's crazy yeah it's insane <laughs> Literally insane. Yeah. well i think uh i think there's something to i guess at any point in human history there was the threat of annihilation or destruction of your village or family or war sure sure but there is something to be said for since world war ii since the atomic bomb we're living with this threat of existential destruction on a planetary scale that's mm-hmm. It's new, actually. I mean, we didn't. Our ancestors didn't have that. It is new, and it's interesting because people, you know, if you talk to any scientist, you know, they'll they'll tell you that the risk to humanity isn't climate change. Like climate change at its worst would make things would be very, very destructive for about a billion people, which is a lot, and that's a real problem. Yeah. But it's not an existential threat. Oh, right? interesting. But thermonuclear war is an existential threat. Like so that's serious. that's yeah. still the number one. Like yeah. that, that makes yeah. climate change like a walk in the park. It's amazing how you we're know? not more worked up about it. I mean, that we're not thinking about it more. Well, I mean, I was right because, you know, I'm like, I'm, so I was born in, in the early 70s. So I was very much raised inside the in, inside the, the purview of the Cold War where, yeah. you know, it was the the threat of nuclear war was something you were raised with. And everybody understood on a, on a level that we were sort of sitting on a ticking time bomb. And so there was a lot of fear around you know, what happens if the Soviets yeah. or the Americans, or, you know, like, what if this gets out of hand? This this could yeah. be this could not just be catastrophic; it could be cataclysmic. Yeah, you know, I think we're getting and, and literally end literally end the species, which isn't going to happen. With so I say that because I, I think and I think we've come down out of the risk of a real global thermonuclear war. You think we've come down? Yeah, I think I think yeah. it's I think the risks now are so well known that there's it. You may have a rogue nation that would fire a bomb or something like that, but I don't think you're going to have the Russians and the Americans trying to annihilate each other. <laughs> um, and so the problems that we face now, you know, global global uh, 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 climate change is, is a huge is a huge problem, but it it is something that's fixable, mm-hmm. which thermonuclear war isn't fixable. Once the happens. buttons, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's, like, that's it. It's done. So in a sense, in this both end model and, and this idea, we're so programmed not to believe that progress is happening in our generation, that we live in the worst of all possible times. Right. And yet I think if you take any long view of history, you can see that, you know, that things are in many ways getting better. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in a lot of ways. Um, well, so I was going to, I was looking at your book and you did a good job of like talking about the culture wars and I forget exactly. I wrote it down, but like, you know, a fascist is someone who, who wants to, get rid of people on the opposite side or the, the opposing group and mm-hmm. that, but that the, some people on the left have that same quality. Mm-hmm. Right. And so just brought to mind, and maybe it's an obvious point, but like rather than looking at things in terms of right wing, left wing, rather than looking at in terms of belonging to the right group or not, it's like levels of development. For sure. Right. Like you could have, you could be a, you could have like a lot of good political beliefs and, you know, 
that can make sense conceptually, but your level of development can be such that you're like, yeah, we should kill all the Republicans or whatever it is. Yeah, they're, <laughs> that's they're, a real problem. I right? mean, you could say you could say that um, tribalism and, and conformity uh, exist on the right and on the left, and I would say that it's tribalism. You know. I'm in a clan, and if you're not in my clan, you are literally my enemy, mm -hmm. and you're my existential enemy. So mm -hmm. when I say tribalism, I mean it in, in that sense. Yeah. Um, or conformity, the idea being that if you don't believe what we are the chosen people, yeah. and if you don't believe what we believe, then you are going to go to some version of hell. Hmm. I think those two mindsets, those two developmental mindsets, um, are just as pronounced on the left as they are on the right. And to me a lot of what we, you know, the quote-unquote woke culture has to do with really good, intelligent, nuanced, brilliant, progressive ideals that have been co-opted by tribalism yeah. and by conformity. Yeah. And so what happens is you have two people in a room and one of them is really, you know, big about cancel culture and wanting to make sure that you don't say things, believing you have bad ideas, wanting mm. to shut you down. And you have the other person who's a really progressive liberal that believes in you know, open dialogue, open thought. Yet, if you actually ask them, on the surface, they appear to have very similar right. beliefs because they right. both believe in you know certain things that are that sound the same. But how they believe in them is really different. Yeah, that's a good way to say it, how they believe in them. How yeah. they believe in them is really yeah. different. And so it's been a little confusing for those of us on the left because I think historically the left didn't have as much tribalism mm. and as much conformity in it as it does now. Uh, um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a curious time to be alive. It, it's weird to be with liberals that believe that you should, to me, censor right. ideas. It's like yes, censoring, it's censoring ideas is not a liberal idea. It's like, no, debate yeah. the ideas <laughs> in an open and honest way. You know, and if you don't like the idea, have a better idea. Or otherwise, maybe, maybe that idea should be in the world if you can't yeah. defeat it. Uh, right. but, but silencing people, it's just, it's a very <clears throat> illiberal thing. So yeah, illiberal it's a very, liberals, yeah. very curious time. So, but to me, that speaks to the, a tribalistic and or conformist mindset. Yeah. So it comes partly out of fear, partly out of the media, but partly out of, I don't, you know, I don't think it's as widely recognized and known and talked about as it should be that we can develop morally, ethically, our world understanding like that, that we can like kind of Wilbur and integral theories are with some of these like levels of development. Mm -hmm. Like, I think we need more sense of that in our culture. Well, right. That's a, that's a perspective, an angle to, like, understand these dynamics that you can, like, you know, yeah, maybe you theoretically are caring for the most people, you know, and that's why you're so worried about these issues, but your response is coming from that tribalism place. Well, that's right, and, and you, you could think of it as egocentric. Right. right? So, so if we talk about development in, in a caring sense, mm -hmm. so there's egocentric, me. I care about me. Mm -hmm. um, there's ethnocentric. I care about mine, my people matter the right. most. Um, there is, then you, you could say then there's world-centric, which is like, well, all of us. And then, you know, you could say there's cosmocentric. Mm. When, you, when you begin to say that, oh, well, it's not just humans, it's all, all sentient beings. Mm. And then even all sentient and non-sentient beings. Mm. You know, not, not just the animals, but also the waters and the sky. Yeah. So as the circles of care evolve, yeah. Um, it's very obvious to people. It's very obvious when you see people that have a world-centric or cosmo cosmic-centric morality uh, versus one that's ethnocentric. And to yeah. me, the culture wars are, anyone that's engaging in the culture wars is 
in an ethnocentric moral view because mm-hmm. it's my people are right, your people are wrong, mm-hmm. and I'll go to war with you mm-hmm. to prove it. Yeah. And whereas if you have a world-centric morality, you automatically transcend the divide as you look at it and you see that like, ah, this is heartbreaking that these people are at each other's throats, but they're they're arguing about so much, but they don't see how much they have in common. They can't yeah. see the bigger picture, which is that we're all in this thing together. Yeah. You know? Totally. It's not as easy as that group is wrong and this group is right. It'd be great if that was true, but it's, it's, not. it's never true. Yeah. It's never true. It's only true from an ethnocentric perspective. Hmm. Then it's true. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Hmm. Well, good. Well, it's been great talking with you. Dang. Um, I'm trying to think of other things. There's a lot in your book. It's a great book. I highly recommend it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, let me see. Let me, let me pull up one of these quotes I got. Your dog is adorable, by the way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> she loves to sleep while we're doing it. I guess, oh, here's a quote from the book. In the integrated view, the truth of the meditative mind is present but so is the truth of vulnerability, care, and fear. This creates a radical difference in how we approach conflict and disharmony. And I think that speaks to what we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, again, the idea that awakening isn't leaving the world or meaning that you're never going to feel or experience these things or see them or be totally removed from them. Not at all. And that idea will prevent your awakening. Yeah, okay, yeah. I mean, it, it will be directly, directly in the path. Um, yeah, it, as I said, we awaken through life, not from life. Mm. So that means all your fears, all your oppressions, all your shit, that, that comes along with you. And you do disidentify with those things. As I said, as, as the awakening process unfolds and you disidentify from your ego structures, you do disidentify from your neurotic tics and patterns as well. That does happen. Mm. Um, and it's still a good idea to do a good dose of psychotherapy. <laughs> Yeah, to help the process. To help the process, yeah, yeah. yeah. To, and to, like to speed it along. So yeah. you, you do psychotherapy from the idea of not trying to fix anything mm. and not trying to, like, be happier. You're, the outcome isn't to, like, I want to, this is a goal of self-improvement, mm. right? So, so in my experience, you set that down. Therapy is done merely to bring awareness to places where there isn't awareness. Mm. That's it. Yeah. And... And then that allows your contemplative or your spiritual practice to have a lot more teeth because the spiritual practice then is about disidentifying, mm. right? To, to getting to a place where um, you are looking at the world, or I should say awareness is looking at the world as awareness. There is no mm. self. Mm. That's what awakening is. It's, a, it's awareness. You know, who awakens? Awakening awakens. Like, right? mm. I don't awaken. You don't awaken. The Dalai Lama doesn't awaken. Like, we don't awaken. Awakening is already awake. Aware is already aware. As mm. humans, we have this amazing capacity to drop into and look at the world as awareness itself. That's mm. what awakening is. Mm-hmm. And in that process, there's a radical disidentification with, with, um, with any kind of ego structure, including all the neurotic tics and patterns. So, yeah. Yeah. And yet they're always there. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. so you don't get, you, you just don't set it down. That's the whole thing. It's through life, not from life. So even in that fully awakened process or in this awakening process, um, 
the, the self still has to get picked back up because you still have to pay your taxes and you have mm. to buy your groceries and you got to pick up the dog shit and the, you know and like, yeah. you know you, you, you got to put gas in the car and yeah. you feed yourself and and so that's so, so there's always a process of of um, disidentifying from the self and then and then picking the self back up when you're actually doing things that you need to do in order to function in life. Yeah, yeah so less and less identity to, with it. Yeah, so we can have these identities and different selves even without identifying solely as them. They're more like tools that we're using, exactly. ways of being, or right, structures in our consciousness that operate. Yeah, it's like, it's like clothes. You know, I wore yeah. a black shirt today, I could have worn a red shirt. You know, right. it's like, but it's the, yeah, yeah you know, I might, uh, when I teach martial arts, I, I, I hold a different persona than I would be than I'm holding here. Sure. Right? Um, yeah. But I would never hold that persona when I'm with my partner. Sure. Right? Yeah. right? So it's like, it, 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 so you, you have more freedom. I'm not, I don't walk around Thinking I'm a martial artist, you know, it's, <laughs> that's something simply. You don't have that, to hold on to that all the time. Yeah, well, it's, yeah. it's irrelevant, right? It, it, yeah. it, when I'm studying in front of my students, then that identity comes up, and I can, I can, I can communicate through that persona, but very consciously, right? It's I'm choosing a persona for communication, mm -hmm. um, and then when I'm done teaching, I set that persona down, and I go back to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think some people are more right fused with a particular identity than others, but yeah, it's, that's good. Well, so I wanted to ask you about, this is a big question, we can just see where it goes or what thoughts, responses you have to it, but just the idea of these traditions, meditative, spiritual paths in our modern culture, like that we're evolving, that things are, that this path of integrating, awakening with all these different aspects of our life, our life is becoming more and more complex, more and more nuanced, more and more information, more and more mm -hmm. fields developing. Mm -hmm. And so this idea that in some ways, like we were talking about with attachment, trauma therapies, you know, different forms of therapy, that like there's a kind of evolution and progress. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people involved with traditional Buddhism, for example, who don't really see things that way. They don't see an evolution. They see awakening as awakening, right? And there's right. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I would say I think that's that's more of a viewpoint of a conformist viewpoint. Hmm. You know, that's like if you go to any church. A, 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 a traditionalist or fundamentalist church, they also don't believe that anything is evolving or changing. Right. right? It's like, no, we have our good book, right. you know, whether it's a Christian book or a Jewish book or whatever, right? It's like, <clears throat> we have our truth and we're actually closed to any feedback that's outside of that tradition. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of Buddhists that are that way. Right. You know, and I would say that's great. You know, mm -hmm. um, I don't think for the people listening to a podcast like this, those kinds of teachers are going to be very helpful to them mm. because they're by definition not going to be integrating anything. And they're going to do the traditional Zen thing. So in a traditional Zen school, if you're struggling with psychodynamic processes, traumas coming up, attachment shits coming up, <clears throat> you know, they would tell you to go back to the Zendo. Right, meditating, right? Meditating. Right. Yeah. It's like, well, I'm I'm you know, I'm I'm having visions of abuse when I was a child. Go back to meditate more. Mm. You're not that just disidentify, go back. And you could argue that traditionally that had a lot of value before we understood psychotherapy. Mm. But in today's world, that's very destructive. And what it teaches is, uh, teaches you a rigidity and a repressiveness, yeah. which is one of the shadows of Zen, right? So <clears throat> Zen has a shadow. It's, it's, uh, it's just don't feel it. You know, mm. just, like if, a, if anger comes up, well, what you do is you just repress the shit out of it. It's like the opposite of therapy. <laughs> yeah, you know, for sure. Yeah. So it's like, because it's not very Zen-like because you're identified with what Zen-like should be. Yeah. And so you yeah. repress anything that doesn't fit that mold. 
Uh, and you can still, I mean, I think you can attain a fairly sophisticated depth of spiritual insight, even if you're doing that. Yeah. The trouble is you're going to be pretty rigid and calcified yeah. under any of those life circumstances where <clears throat> those trigger arises. So you're going to, you know, like certain things, and I've seen this with Zen students, you know, they just avoid things that trigger them. That's what I was going to say, yeah, avoidance. Yeah. So you, just, could, you could set your life up so you're not really in a relationship, you're not really working, you're not, if, you know, if you have the privilege sure. to do that. Or you I mean, just go to a monastery, right? right. You don't have to deal with your parents or your siblings right. or your spouse or your dog or anything, yeah. right? You just, yeah, so I think I, I totally respect a more ascetic or monastic path for those who are really cold. That's their genuine path. Yeah, for and sure. I, I also really respect what I think we're talking about, which is being fully engaged in the world and integrating as much wisdom and compassion as we can with the different areas we choose to engage in. Like, Absolutely. Like, I'm make music. Well, let me be as awake as I can while I'm making music. For sure. Right? Or whatever it is. And, and, and I think, like, <clears throat> the monastic path. So I had the honor of going and, and sitting with and meeting Father Thomas Keating. Oh, yeah. He was a Trappist monk. Uh, he, and, did he die? Yeah, he died a few years ago, maybe five five years ago. Uh, uh, but he was out in Snowmass, Colorado. Mm -hmm. It's a couple hours from here. And when I was um, going to be ordained as a Zen priest, I realized, you know, having been raised Catholic in this sort of corporal punishment, close-minded, mm -hmm. very traditionalist, very conformist um, culture. And I was very angry still at my Catholic upbringing. I had a lot of hatred towards the church, yeah. contempt for those that were quote unquote dumb enough, you know, to choose those those mm. paths. And I realized that there was just there's a lot of problems internally with me with how I was holding it. And so I wrote Father Thomas Keating a letter and sent him Jumpo's biography and uh, just said I'm coming down and I would like like to speak to him about the fact that I was getting ordained and had you know some stuff to process through with with mm. my background. And I got there and um, those monks met me as an equal. And it was it was just incredible. They they welcomed me in. I was able to to go to their morning prayers, which I right. shouldn't have been able to go to because I'm a Catholic in bad standing because I uh, stopped taking the Eucharist a long time ago. But I took the uh, Eucharist with them. Interesting. Um, they sang, you know, um, and I got to meet with Father Thomas Keating. And what I experienced in this monastery, the beauty of the monastic path, mm. is that all these men did was train. Mm. And so the depth of their insight and what it was profound, like to be in that container. And what I experienced for the first time in my life was what Christos really is. Mm. I, I, I was, these men, they were so in their hearts, mm. their hearts were so aflame with love of God. Mm. It was palpable. Mm. It came through their words. It came through their eyes. It certainly came through their actions. Mm. And I realized that, oh, this is what the core of Christianity is. This is the precious gem that's at the center of, of Christianity. Not all of this dogmatic bullshit that I was mm. taught yeah. from people that were so far removed from that experience of God in their own heart. Yeah. But they, would, they wouldn't know that if it was, you know, they, they, they had no sense of that. Um, so the, for me, I, when, I, when I'm saying all that because I want to, uh, two things. One, I want to point out that I think any contemplative in any tradition has a lot to teach us as householders mm. because, because their lives are about deepening their insight. They will likely have more to teach us mm. about the, the depth of insight that we may not have Absolutely. because that's yes. all they do. Totally fair, yeah. And their path isn't integration and it shouldn't be integration. Mm. 
right? That if you're living in a monastery, you don't necessarily need to be good with your parents. Mm. Um, it, it, <laughs> might, it might not really matter. And so, yeah, I just I want to be careful because yeah. it sounds like what we were saying earlier yeah. that we were sort of dismissing it. No, I, I, I want to be really that. clear yeah. that I, I deeply value, value it, and I and there's a need for it. And we should always honor the people that are willing to spend their lives in contemplation because I believe also from like a morphogenetic field or human field mm. that they are helping to lift all of us mm -hmm. through their practice. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I believe really that. believe that. Yeah. So, um, and I think anytime any of us go on retreat or anytime any of us are willing to sit on the cushion for any length of time, mm. we're not just doing it for ourselves. We are doing it for everybody. It's helping. And, and so, and if you, even if you try that on as a belief and you don't really believe it, but if you try it, it will change the way you sit because you're not sitting for yourself yeah. anymore. Yeah. I'm not going to meditate so I can wake up. It's more power. I'm going to meditate so that I can help raise the collective field of humanity. Mm -hmm. And for me, sitting as an act of service is a lot easier than sitting for me wanting to get something out of it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. A little paradoxical, but yeah, I believe that. Well, thanks for sharing that. I think I wish more people in the world, I wish I could have this experience more often, but I wish that more people could have the experience you just described of connecting with people who are deeply contemplative, who are mm -hmm. devoting their life to that kind of training and can actually feel that goodness, that love, that compassion. I felt that more from some Buddhist teachers. I don't think I have felt it as much with Christianity. I haven't sought it out as much, but for sure, I believe that it's there, but it's like to be in that that field where you're like, oh, there's something here that they have achieved that, you know, that it's worth it. You can feel it. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. There's, um, I mean, in my experience, there's a there's a fundamental goodness that you get in touch with as your insights deepen. Mm. So that there is a goodness that comes through you that is undeniable. Mm. And it makes acting selfishly much more difficult. Not because you should, not because it's good or bad. This, this is completely beyond morality. Mm. Um, you do what's right because it's coming through your heart and through your actions in a way that is, um, that has nothing to do with what you believe or think you should be doing. It's mm. just right action is spontaneous, mm. obvious. And if there was evaluation, it would be that it's simply more interesting than acting selfishly. Hmm. Um, but Jumpo, you know, my, my teacher, the way he gauged the depth of someone's insight wasn't by how deep their mind was or how, how deep their insight was in a mental space. It was how vast their compassion was. Hmm. That was his mark of hmm. if you're truly awakened, he'd say, if you're truly awakened, let me look in your refrigerator. Yeah. And people go, what? And he'd say, well, you open your refrigerator. Do you have a lot of like agribusiness in there? Like a lot of tortured eggs, yeah. you know, from like big farms and, well. and like yeah. cheap meat and, you know, or has your practice actually transformed to this world centric thing we're talking about? Yeah. Where you realize that, oh, part of my lived realization is that my relationship to all things matters. Mm. Not because it should matter, because it's fucking obvious. It's obvious. So I, it doesn't, might not mean I don't eat meat, but it would mean that I would source my, ve my meat as ethically as possible. Right. I want to make sure that, that, was, um, that there was consciousness in the process. It mattered to you, yeah. 
because because it matters because it's yeah again not because it should not because it's the right thing but because it's just undeniably true mm. yeah it's a big difference yeah we have enough shoulds and <laughs> should do this and should do that. We hear that a million times. And, and we tell ourselves that all the time, too. Yeah. And it doesn't really work, you know. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I love how we're kind of, what you just named about the value of someone who's devoted their life to meditation or prayer or contemplation kind of connects back to the beginning of our conversation to have a role for the shaman, the healer, the meditator, to have a role for people like that. And um, I think you're right about the field, like the overall planetary <laughs> It's it's doing something on, yeah. on that scale for sure. Yeah, I, and you know that's one of those things that's sort of hard to point at with any with any sort of objective scientific lens. It's more of a felt intuition. But but um, you know we are evolving uh, our capacity to take increasingly complex perspective is clearly evolving. Yeah. Um, you know, a thousand years ago, there there was basically nobody that wasn't in a tribalist or conformist mindset. Mm-hmm. You know, it was very very rare. It was now most people in the West mm. um, have evolved beyond, certainly beyond tribalism, mm-hmm. and you know probably more than half or three quarters have, have evolved beyond pure conformity. Conformity being fundamentalism, believing in the mm. one truth, the one book. Mm-hmm. I, me, and my people have the one. We've got to figure it figured out. And if you don't believe what we believe. Well, you're going to go to hell, so I need to convert you to yeah. save you. So, I guess uh, one piece about that, and I think I read Ken Olber talk about this, but that like we're all kind of born, you know, the babies are born at square one, and so sure. there has to be this educational process that's helping us move along these this growth and development yeah. to get to what you're talking about, and we can't take that for granted. And I think it's, when I think about human development now, I, I really see that like, for sure, you can move in a positive direction, but like I said earlier, you can also move in a negative direction in different areas, like the different lines of development that Ken Wilber articulates that mm-hmm. you could grow a lot in one area and not grow as much in another area. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, you know, our fundamental nature is goodness or Buddha nature or Christ consciousness, all that for sure. And we have so much adaptability. Mm-hmm. A human being can go in so many different forms, like we can evolve in so many different directions. Mm-hmm. I don't want to like make it overly simplistic as like a good direction or a bad direction, but I think there's truth to that. And it's like, can get in trouble if you kind of assume that, oh, everything, you know, all, everything's moving in a good direction all the time overall. It's like, actually, not necessarily. Yeah, not necessarily. And by what metric and, you know, um, some things are unquestionably moving in a good direction. Sure. And other mm-hmm. things are unquestionably not moving in a good direction. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, sort of, it depends where you put your focus. But we always have to be aware that as human beings, our brains evolve to be experts at seeing what's wrong. That's how we've, that's how mm. we've survived. We don't, you don't survive um, by being like, hey, everything's, everything's great. You know, like the, the skies are clear and right. it's warm, you know, and then, you know, well, you have a winter's coming. So you might want to be, you know, worrying about what isn't right. Um, so you don't starve to point. Yeah. And so, and so our, we have a huge cognitive bias towards, towards seeing what's wrong in the world, which yeah. is great because it helps us fix what is wrong, but it can also make it really hard for us to look at the world and actually appreciate the yeah. things that are good and appreciation and gratitude, mm-hmm. um, to me are just so absolutely indispensable mm. on a spiritual path that, um, I mean, I think a good practice would be to write down, you know, write down a thousand things you're grateful for. Wow. <laughs> um, 
bits that you, you can train your mind to actually, I mean, look at this, we're sitting in a heated building. We have electricity over our heads. We have this amazing technology. Yeah. There's water that comes out of a thing right behind <laughs> me here. I have to go to the bathroom. It's right down the hall. Yeah, um, yeah. I've got warm clothes on. You know, I have an automobile. I've got teachers, friends. I'm healthy. You know, like yeah. I, I mean, live in this amazing place of Boulder. It's an exciting time to be alive. I mean, your dog is adorable. You know, there's, there's, <laughs> there, there's, there's so many things to be grateful for. Yeah, you know, like it's literally you could get to a thousand like this. Why would you want to do that? Well, because we we are fully conditioned beings, humans. Mm. And so I talked before about the default mode network and how it's the patterns of thinking that makes you you and makes me me. And if you're not aware of the way that you think about things, mm. the way you think about things and the way that you feel about things is you conditioning yourself mm. every day, just like a Pavlovian dog. Yeah. Right? There's a stimulus and you condition yourself and it just feels like you being you. Mm. But you condition yourself into all kinds of things that <clears throat> may not be serving you, may not be helping to be with what is. Yeah. Doing a practice like gratitude helps you to retrain the mind. So when you look out at the world, what you see is that like, oh. I mean, imagine, mm. imagine if most people in the world walked around being grateful. Yeah. I mean, just think about how profoundly that would change our world. Yeah, yeah, change everything. I mean, it's hard to imagine there'd be much war. Mm. Yeah. Right. So simple practices like this, uh, to me, yeah. are, are um, fundamentally necessary to help free ourselves. Because a lot of what my book is about is that we are fully conditioned beings. Mm. And we have a little window where we can be self-aware of that and we can recondition ourselves through meditation, through, through something like a gratitude practice, mm. through coming to understand that there are no victims and that we are never a victim, mm. although victimization may have happened to us, mm. making that choice. Mm -hmm. There are ways where we can recondition ourselves so that we have a tremendous amount more psychological freedom to be in our world and to really make the awakening process much more effective. Yeah. Because we're not fighting all of these default ways that we think the world should be. Mm. Fuck you, world. I can't believe that you're doing mm. this. It's like, you know, well, you can get mad at the world all you want. You get mad at the other people you don't like. Mm. It doesn't change anything. Your, your outrage doesn't do anything. It doesn't help anybody. All it does is reify your suffering. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good way to look at it. Like, what is what's helpful? I come back to that question a lot. And what's just, helpful? Just being angry, just being outraged, just being negative, just being yeah. I mean, outrage is it, it's exhausting, right? The outrage machine. It's like, yeah. oh god, someone else is outraged about something. You know, it's like, so what? Yeah. What good are you doing? Right. The good you're doing is you're making yourself feel like you're doing something when mm -hmm. actually you're doing nothing. Yeah. That's the truth. Yep. Yeah. And not only are you doing nothing, you're probably contributing to the problem that you're trying to solve. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot there, but I think part of it is some people, maybe a lot of people, it's like feel a sense of guilt or shame around allowing yourself to feel well, to feel good, to appreciate, For sure. to That's... feel the gratitude that you're talking about. Because there's- People will say things like, oh, first world problems. Right. You know, which is a way to dismiss what might be a really authentic place that I'm in pain. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, if I come to you for therapy, I'm like, oh, this is a first world problem. You know, it's like, it's like, well, this is a problem. It's your life. It's yeah. your life. And, it matters. Yeah. you know, you didn't choose to be born in this culture. Right. You didn't choose to be born. You know, if you come from money, you didn't choose that. Yeah, Any a, more than you choose if you came from poverty. You know, yeah. you just you have the karma that you have. Yeah. Yeah. Stop blaming ourselves. And if I don't allow compassion for myself in my life, if I say, well, first world problem, who am I to, how am I ever going to have compassion for you? Mm. Yeah. You know. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> if you're like me, it's like, well, I'd be like, well, you should stop whining. You know, like I do, I just I just repress it, you know, and then have a few extra cocktails in the evening, you know, so I can sleep. That's one way. <laughs> and again, like you know, you're not you're not helping yourself, and you're not helping the collective when we do that. Hmm. When you when you don't honor that your suffering is um, has a right to be heard, and hmm. that by yeah. facing our suffering. That is that is the spiritual path, right? You know, the four noble yeah. truths, right? The yeah. world is suffering, but suffering has a cause. Face it, go into it. Yeah. Right. Uh, if you if you address the cause, suffering can end. Mm -hmm. And of course, then they say, you know, follow the eightfold path. But I like I like to make the four: the world is suffering, suffering has a cause. If you understand the cause, suffering can end, and the cause is I. Mm. Yeah. And when you understand that. When you understand that all of your suffering is caused by I, mm. you can end your suffering. You won't end your pain. <laughs> That's not part of the human contract, but you can end your suffering. And yeah. I, I love the Shinzing Young equation for suffering, that mm. suffering is pain times resistance. Mm. Times resistance, yeah. Times not resistance. plus resistance. <laughs> suffering equals pain times resistance. Yeah. And that's just true. I mean, to me, that's an, it's an absolute truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I agree. The thing around the, the I being the source of it is, might be a whole other, I mean, it could be a whole other podcast or books, or you can read a million books, but it's not that intuitively easy for a lot of people to just like click into that. Yeah, you, 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 you have to have an experience that. beyond self. So when, yeah. so. If anyone's listening to this and that doesn't, that feels like a what, a philosophical statement, maybe. Yeah. It's not a philosophical statement. It's an experiential statement. Mm. And when you, and you can have an experience beyond self through the, the cheat, the short psilocybin or LSD, um, ketamine, they can give you experiences beyond the self. So you, you yeah. can have a chemically assisted way to have an experience beyond self. When you have an experience beyond self, there is no I. And when you have that experience, you know that what I just said is true. Mm. If there's no self, there is no suffering. Always. Mm. There may be pain, mm -hmm. but there's no suffering. That, that's all the Buddha promised us, right? <laughs> he, he promised us to be liberated from suffering. He never promised us to be liberated from pain. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Right? And so yeah. what is, well, suffering is a mindset. Right there, this whole idea of evolving to the point in this whole transcendental rainbow body and all this stuff, you know, it's, um, mm. I think it really misses the fundamental point and the fundamental power of Buddhism, which is everything you need to awaken your head right here. Yeah. And we've talked about some of the both end around maybe yeah. attachment work and trauma work that might be necessary to help free you up along the path. But it's still everything that you have, everything that you need is right here inside of you. I love that. That's a powerful message. I think we need to, I need to hear that. We all need to hear that because <laughs> there's so many books and courses and teachers and trainings and, or medicine journeys or this or that. And it's like, let's keep coming back to what you just said. Like 
you Absolutely. you have everything you need. So if I'm a, if I'm a, if I'm a teacher, I'm really the idea is I'm a teacher shoulder to shoulder with my students because mm-hmm. I have nothing to give them. Mm-hmm. I have nothing to give them except a perspective. They are the Buddha. They yeah. are awakened. Yeah. I know that. They may not know that. Mm-hmm. So then the process of teaching is to, why would I be up on some kind of a pedestal? Mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 what am I selling? I'm I'm selling them who they are. <laughs> you know, so there's nothing to be uh, arrogant about or to give myself some special status around mm-hmm. right it's like we're, we're, we're fundamentally not fundamentally we mm-hmm. are the same mm-hmm. you know the only difference is some of us know that and some of us don't that's the yeah. only difference yeah. but even if you don't know it it's okay because you are it anyway <laughs> so, so it still doesn't matter like right it's like it, it, it's just a matter of that's the difference it's why booed you know, Bood means awake. Awaken, the, yeah. Right? Bood, awake, awakening. Buddha, awakened. So to awaken from the dream. Yeah. Of a That's separate a self. To awaken from a dream, yeah. Right? So it's, it's like you we're dreaming that we're a separate self, but we're not separate from anything or anyone. That's all awakening is. Yeah. And when you realize that, your suffering ends. That's liberation. Mm. But you still die. <laughs> <laughs> You still die and realize that it might not give you the fancy house or the life of your dreams or whatever. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that, might not, that might not be your karma. Yeah. 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 That's true. Yeah. Beautiful. This is a super rich conversation. really appreciate you coming and sharing your wisdom and insight. Oh, thank you. I don't feel like I'm sharing wisdom, but thank you. I'm just sharing, <laughs> sharing what I see, but thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's fun to talk about. Yeah, this is great. Thanks. And people can find your book. Do you want to mention a website or anything? Yeah, sure. Yeah, my website is uh, just my name, keithmartinsmith.com. And uh, uh, when the Buddha needs therapy, it's available Kindle, print, and also uh, Audible, so they can get it anyway, oh, anyway they want. Yeah. And I'm very accessible, so if people want to reach out to me, uh, I always respond personally. So if anybody wants to contact me through my website, feel free. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of a State of Mind podcast. I work here in Boulder, Colorado, as a psychotherapist, coach, a meditation teacher, and you can learn more about that at estateofmindcounseling.org. You can learn more about the podcast at our website, estateofmindpodcast.com. And you can also get a t-shirt, stickers, a hoodie, like this one I'm wearing, and other goodies. Send us a message if you want those. Feel free to send us any feedback. If you'd like to support this podcast directly, you can do that at patreon.com backslash estateofmind. And another way that you can support the show is just to share it with friends, share it with family, post about it on your social media accounts, leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. All those things make a big difference, and they're greatly appreciated. And I really appreciate everyone who listens to this, who sends us a message, who shows their support. We are at over 100 episodes now, and it's just been an incredible journey with this podcast. And I'm really looking forward to bringing you more great episodes, great conversations, and great content in the future. So stay tuned, and I will see you here next time.